You are listening to sermon audio from College Creek Church in Annapolis, Maryland. For more information on this local body of believers, visit us online at collegecreekchurch.org or in person every Sunday at 11 a.m. Well, as we begin this morning, um, I just want to, to point out something to you that you may have noticed um, in the way that we choose our passages each week um, here at College Creek Church. You know, for the last eight weeks, we've been walking through the book of Colossians. So if you've been with us for the last eight weeks, you might be expecting that this morning I would turn your attention back to Colossians. So you might be surprised when I point to somewhere else. Um, but we have finished that series. Not that there isn't more to glean from that book, but we are moving to another. So this morning, I won't be reminding you that our series is called Jesus Above All or pointing you to Colossians. Rather, we're going to look at Psalm chapter one this morning. But I want you to notice something about the rhythm of our preaching here at College Creek Church. It is our belief that all of scripture is God-breathed, that all of scripture is useful in our lives, that all of scripture helps us to grow in our love of God, helps us to live more like Jesus, helps us become more and more dependent on the spirit of God. And because of that, we are committed to preaching the whole counsel of God's word. And so what you will find in your time here is that we will preach through books of scripture, just like we did with the book of Colossians. And if you stick with us long enough, by God's grace, if the Lord tarries, we hope to have preached through the entire Bible in the next 20 years. Now, that may seem like a long time um, for, for some of us. So let me just say this. If in the next 20 years, you need to move to another church. Maybe you move cities and you need to move to another. Here's my encouragement. Find a place that will preach to you from the whole counsel of God. That's what I encourage you to look for. Find a church that believes that all of scripture is useful to your life as a Christian. So what you'll find here is that we'll preach through about four books of the Bible every year. And in between those series through a book of the Bible, we'll have a week like today that sort of stands on its own. And in those weeks, we'll often hear from the Psalms. And so today we're going to look at Psalm chapter one. But as we prepare to do that, let me just give us some helpful information about the reading and the understanding of the Psalms. The Psalms are different than much of the rest of scripture, right? They're songs, they're, they're poems that are written in response to the things that are happening in the lives of God's people throughout history. And so one way to kind of think about the, the sorts of writing that we have in scripture, especially in the Old Testament, is to think about it in three categories, right? So you have the histories, those are the books like, um, like Exodus or First and Second Kings, or like the book of Ruth, which we're going to start um, studying together next week. And these are telling us exactly what's happening to the people of God. Then you have the prophets, books like Isaiah or Jeremiah, which give us sort of the, the voice of God on high in the midst of the things that are happening. The prophets give you a kind of a, a behind the scenes look at the judgments and the blessings of God. Um, they're kind of like the director's commentary on, on a movie that you might be watching. 
And then you have the writings, books like the Psalms. And the writings, which are mostly poetic, they help us understand what the people of God feel in the midst of the things that they are walking through. What are their feelings in the midst of their circumstances? How are they responding to what is happening in their life? So when we read it all together, it actually makes this beautiful picture because we know what's happening from the histories. We know what God says about it from the prophets. And then we know what people feel about it from the writings. And so the writings can be incredibly instructive to us because in them, you will find, especially in the Psalms, all sorts of emotions. You'll see the people of God from years ago responding to circumstances that aren't actually that different than the ones that you and I face every day. And so their writing is helpful because they help us know how maybe we ought to respond to the circumstances in our life. as They give us freedom to express emotion feelings, perhaps even those feelings that we thought were unacceptable to bring to God. When we read the Psalms, we realize that people have been saying those sorts of things for a long time. You can take anything to God is one thing that we can see in the book of the Psalms. And so as they express, so we can express. And so we want to look today at Psalm 1, which actually isn't particularly emotional, um, but it is very instructive to us. So the psalm is laying out for us something that the the whole of Scripture lays out. It is trying to demonstrate that there are actually, at the end of it all, if we really sum it up, there are only two types of people. Or we could say there are two types of living. We see this all through Scripture. There are two types of people, the righteous and the wicked. Those are your two types. Now, we may not particularly like that. Right? We would rather there be a spot for sort of the mostly righteous or the not all the way wicked. Um, but the Bible's clear. There's only two types of people, the righteous and the wicked. There are two ways of living. And Psalm 1 is one of the clearest places to see that. So let me read for us from Psalm chapter 1. You can turn there. It'll be on the screen as well. If you picked up a Bible on your way in, you'll find it on page 254. And listen, if you don't have a Bible of your own at home, please take one of those with you as our gift to you. Well, this is Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We're presented with two types of people, the righteous and the wicked. As I said earlier, this is proclaimed all through scripture. 
Now, at different times and in different passages, it's going to use slightly different words, but it's always these two, the righteous and the wicked, the godly and the ungodly, the wise and the foolish, the sheep and the goats, the good and the evil. There are only two types of people, two ways of living, those who know God and those who do not, those who follow Jesus and those who don't. Two ways to live. And one way we will find in our passage this morning, one way to life. Two ways to live, one way to life. The psalmist points out three key differences between the righteous and the wicked. He says they have different influences, they have a different character, and their lives have a different outcome. Different influences, different character, different outcome. Let's think about the different influences in the righteous and the wicked. Look back at verses 1 and 2. He said, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Right now, the, the literary choice here is to talk about the blessed person in both the negative and the positive, but it's clear um, what the influence of the wicked is. The wicked are influenced by others who are wicked, right? So before coming to the blessed one, let's just consider for a moment its opposite. There is clearly here another person who is walking in the counsel of the wicked, standing in the way of sinners, sitting in the seat of scoffers. Now, some people are going to see sort of a progression here, right? There's a spectrum sort of walking, standing, sitting. I don't think that we need to try to place ourselves there or try to place other people there because I think that actually what scripture would say is you ought to flee from all of it. If you're walking, standing, sitting, it doesn't matter. Run away from the influence of the wicked, there is something to be said about this sort of increasingly settled nature of the wicked one, right? First, they, they walk, and then as if growing comfortable, they stop and they stand around, and then eventually they just grab a chair and sit down in the place of the scoffers, in the place of sinfulness, no longer simply participating, but now scoffing at the righteous one. Now, if the righteous, on the other hand, we're told, are finding their delight in Scripture. It's referred to here as the law of the Lord. We shouldn't read this to simply mean the, the legal codes of the Bible, but the whole of God's Word. Right? The point doesn't seem so much that he delights in law, but that he delights in the law of the Lord. He delights in God, in the presence of God, in the Word of God, in the Lord himself. It is scripture that is delightful to the righteous, so much so that he will meditate on it continually, night and day. In every circumstance, at every moment, the word of God is close at hand. You know, that idea has been particularly convicting to me in this last week. As I prepared for this sermon this has been particularly convicted. I think it's something that maybe we all should ponder. Where do I go for wisdom and counsel? In what do I find joy and rest? You know, this 
last week may have made us all think about this sort of harder than we wanted to. A couple of things happened in this last week that both dealt with the same place, a place that many of us find wisdom and counsel and joy and rest. I'm talking, of course, of, of social media. Right a little over a week ago, this bombshell report came out that Facebook, that Facebook knew and disregarded how dangerous its algorithm was. Right, how it was especially targeting young girls. It knew, it says Facebook knew that it was causing and, and perpetuating this mental health crisis among young women. But it just continued to do it because it was making money. Now, many of us, myself included, sort of heard that report and thought, frankly, little of it beyond just how obvious it seemed. Of course that was true. Of course, Facebook and Instagram, and frankly, most, if not all, social media sites, of course they were putting profits before people. Of course they were. And I don't mean this to be some sort of anti-social media rant here, but it is very true that these online spaces have become hotbeds for the counsel of the wicked. And many of us allow ourselves to walk in their counsel and then we stand in their way and social media seems to be the very best place to find scoffers to sit among. And then it was all driven home to us with force, right? On Monday, when the website went down for six hours in the middle of the day, in the middle of the day, six hours, and perhaps at that moment, we realized just how much delight we took in these places as well. Right? Where do you go for wisdom and counsel and delight and rest? Do you delight in God's word? Do you walk in the counsel that you find there? Do you find rest sitting in the presence of God? Or do you find it more enjoyable to sit in the seat of scoffers? What are the driving influences in your life? And I think a thing that has made me uncomfortable in the past week has been this thought. If I were to add up all of the time that I spend in front of a screen and compare it to, to the amount of time that I spend in front of my Bible, I am embarrassed by the ratio. And again, I'm not trying to say that watching movies or watching TV is inherently bad or that the internet is from Satan. It's just for me, I had to wonder, where am I getting my counsel? What are the driving influences in your life? And so I thought I would pass those questions on to you. Now, I want to talk about one of the words we see in our passage here that might be a little confusing. In verse 2, it says this. On his law, he meditates day and night. I just want to say something about this word meditate, this idea of meditation. Right? When the Bible talks about meditation, it always talks about meditating on something. Right? In this case, on the law of God. In other places, on the works of God or perhaps on God himself. Right? And that is a very different way of talking about meditation than it's talked about these days. These days, our idea of meditation has been influenced by Eastern religions like Hinduism and Buddhism. And in those traditions, to meditate is to empty your mind, to focus on yourself, to focus on nothingness. 
That's very different, obviously different from what scripture means. When our passage says to meditate, it says meditate on God's law. That is to fill your mind, to fill your heart with the very words of God, to allow the words of God to echo around in your mind night and day, to dwell on the beauty of God and his word so that you might see it from every glorious angle. Or perhaps another way to say it is the way the New Testament says it. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, it says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think, meditate on these things. Or even as we read a couple of weeks ago from Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, set your minds on the things that are above and not on the things on earth. Let your mind become fixated on the things of God. Meditate on his word. Don't empty your mind, fill it. Fill your mind, fill your heart with God's truth. Right, there are two ways to live. But the righteous and the wicked have two very different influences. And from those different influences come two very different characters. And we see their character laid out in a couple of of sort of farming analogies that he uses in the middle of this psalm. So look at verses three and four. He says, he that is the righteous one, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Two ways to live. And one of them is like a tree planted by streams of water. And if we let that analogy sort of breathe a little bit, and if we'll we'll attach it to the verses that came right before it, See this, the streams of water are the law of the Lord and the roots of this tree are drawing deeply from its supply. And from the midst of that refreshment, this person finds in God's word, they begin to bear fruit. They begin to demonstrate life. They begin to prosper. In fact, it it seems fair to say that the more we are rooted in the presence and the word of God, the more fruitful we will become. And so if you're noticing a lack of fruitfulness in your life, any good gardener would tell you, maybe you should consider the soil that you are rooted in. Let's talk about fruit for just a moment. When we, when we look at scripture, there are two different ways it talks about fruitfulness. Uh, the first is the fruit of the gospel. That is people being saved, people turning to Jesus because of your testimony to his death and resurrection. We bear fruit. And there's another form of fruitfulness that scripture talks about. We might call it the fruit of righteousness or the fruit of the spirit, right? Galatians 5 tells us that the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And it would seem appropriate that we would consider both forms of fruit in our discussion. But, But more than examining your life as if looking for failure, I would rather say it this way. If you want 
to see these things in your life. If you desire that your life would be one where others would come to know Jesus, a life that is full of love and joy and peace and patience, if you desire to see those things in your life, then the starting point is rooting yourself in the word of God and in the presence of God. But but it's perhaps important for us to remember that a, a tree bears fruit not for itself, right? Trees bear fruit for other people, not for themselves. In fact, when it talks about prospering in this passage, it doesn't mean prospering for your own gain or for your own good, but for the good of others, right? So notice the passage doesn't say that you're going to prosper generally. What it says is that you'll prosper in all you do. But if we back up in our story, we might ask this, what kinds of things would one rooted in God do? Right? You see, if we're, if we're in God and we're walking in the counsel of God and we're delighting in the word of God, then we'll be about doing the things of God. And then in all we do, we will prosper. But this is in contrast to what some might call the prosperity gospel, right? In Psalm 1, we see something different. It seems to be saying that the tree is robust enough to do good for others, even while withstanding all the hardships of this life. Why? Because it is rooted in God. We actually see this laid out really beautifully in Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah seems to take this passage in Psalm 1 and sort of expound on it in Jeremiah 17. Here's what he says. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Do you see that it's not that this person doesn't face hardship, but that they trust in the Lord in the midst of their hardship. The heat still comes, but the fear stays away because they trust in God. God doesn't promise that there won't be a year of drought, but he promises that if you trust in him, you will still bear fruit in the midst of the drought. Now, I don't like that. I don't like that sentence. I don't like a year of drought, right? It's one thing to not fear in the midst of some heat, but it's altogether different to not be anxious even when the drought drags on for a year. And I know that for some of us today, we are facing some heat and others are in the middle of a year or what may feel like years of drought. But hear me, you will shrivel up and die if you are not rooted and the presence and the word of God. But if you trust in the Lord, no matter what comes, you need not fear. Trusting in the Lord, let's be more specific. Trusting in Jesus Christ alone is our only hope. It is the only way to life. There are two ways to live, but there is only one way to life. And Jesus is that way. So so look at what our passage says about the other way to live. It says, the wicked are like the chaff that the wind just drives 
away. He's using another agricultural image here, chaff from the wheat. Here's what happened when you harvest the wheat, the, the grain, the, the kernel, the, the edible part of it is sort of encased in a shell. And so what you would do is you would dry it out and then you would crush it up and then you would throw it in the air. And when you threw it in the air, all the good kernels, the edible wheat would come back down because they have weight to them, but all of the chaff that weigh nothing would just be blown away. And so you'd be left with good, good wheat, but all the chaff would go away. Of course, this would have made perfect sense to those who were reading it originally. Here's the point though, if we can be clear, the wicked are useless. They're no good to themselves or others. The righteous bear fruit for the sake of others, but the wicked are no good and do no good for anyone. Another way to think about it is just to consider how far chaff is from life. The righteous are this living, prospering tree, but the wicked, on the other hand, have been picked, dried out, crushed up, and blown away. They are lifeless. Right, that there are two ways to live, but there's only one way to life. In fact, John the Baptist picks up on this analogy in, in the book of Matthew. He's talking about Jesus in chapter three, and he says this, his winnowing fork, that's the shovel that you use to throw the wheat, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He is setting about separating the wheat from the chaff, the righteous and the wicked. The righteous he gathers unto himself, but the chaff is burned. There are two ways to live, but only one way to life. Which leads us all very naturally to this final difference between the righteous and the wicked. They have different influences, right? Which lead to different character. And then we find that they have a different outcome. The final two verses speak to this. It says, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now I want us to focus especially on that last verse. It tells us that the way of the wicked will perish, will go be blown away like the chaff, right? But the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The consequence of a life lived apart from God is an eternity spent apart from God. The way of the wicked will perish. There are two ways to live, but only one way to life. The way to life is righteousness. Look what it says about the righteous. It says the Lord knows the way of the righteous. That word know, it is far better than we give it credit for. We read that word know and we think it means like understand, like the Lord is aware of the way of the righteous. But when scripture uses that word know, what it means is to have a relationally intimate knowledge this is why in Genesis chapter four, it says, and Adam knew his wife and she conceived. He didn't know something about her. He was relationally intimate with her, right? To know, and it says here that the Lord knows 
the way of the right. The Lord's in an intimate relationship with the righteous. The giver of life has come into intimate relationship with his creation such that he would give to the righteous life. There are two ways to live, but only one way to life. Now, as with much of the Old Testament, this passage creates a problem for us. If we're honest, if we're honest when we read it, we realize that we're not righteous. In fact, no one is. None of us are righteous. There's none of us who have always delighted in the word of God, but there is one. There is one who has always delighted in God's word. There is one who has always borne fruit for the good of others. There is one whose way is certainly known unto God, and that one is Jesus. He is righteous. We're wicked, all of us. We all stand in the same place, hopeless, except that this righteous one, this righteous one, this Jesus, he came and he died so that we could live. He took our wickedness upon himself and he offered his righteousness unto us. So now, scripture tells us anybody, anybody who would repent, that is, turn from their sins and turn to Jesus, believe in Jesus, will not perish, but have eternal life. He is the only way to life because he himself is life. This is what he says. And so friend, if you've never trusted in Jesus, hear me, there are two ways to live, but there is only one way to life. And frankly, your best attempts at living in righteousness will still put you in wickedness. The only way to life is in Christ Jesus himself. Now, for those of you who have trusted in Jesus, I still might ask us to consider this. Are you rooting your life deeply in the presence and the word of God? Because there is life there. Each and every day, there is life there that you might bear fruit each and every day for the good of others each and every day. In the presence and the word of God, there is refreshment and hope and joy and peace and comfort and satisfaction to be found. Delight yourself in him and in his word and all that you do will prosper. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the, the life that you offer to us in Jesus. Lord, it's easy for us to read a passage like this and try to identify with the righteous. But when we take that honest and sober look at things, we realize that we all stand together on the side of wickedness and in desperate need of you. And so we're just so thankful for the offer of salvation we find in Jesus. Help us, Lord, help us to root ourselves deeply in your presence. Help us to find delight and joy in your word. Lord, may it be the constant meditation of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.